Morning, morning. Good to see you all. You know, I think Mother's Day is an interesting contrast with Father's Day so often with regard to, I grew up in the church and I just sort of noticed a pattern that with Mother's Day, it's just the celebration of awe and magnificence. And Father's Day, we like take fathers to the woodshed. So maybe maybe next month we'll have a different uh, perspective. <clears throat> All right. So how about some uh, psychiatric sessions here for just a few minutes? Would that be okay? Okay with you, Jim? I know you've got, got it run, runs in the family, so Jim, Jim will ace this thing. But you know the word association, uh, I was going to say game, but the activity where the psychologist or psychiatrist or whoever says a word and then you say the first thing that pops in your mind. So let's do that. All right. Let's see what kind of cacophony we can have right here in our class. So I'll say a word and you out loud say the first thing that comes to your mind. So let's see how this goes. Okay. Hot. Day. Boy. Okay, that's great, great. Now let's get spiritual, all right? Heaven. Hmm. Is that really the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of heaven? Interesting, we get in a pattern. We get in a pattern of opposites, and then all of a sudden, boom. Because the next thing I would say is God. So are you going to say, the devil? Probably not. It's a trick. Well, it's not meant to be a trick. Now, don't, don't answer this one out loud, but what's the first word that comes to your mind, or the first thing you think of when you think of worship? What do you think of when you think of worship? Some people think it means attending church or listening to a sermon or singing songs. Actually, the statistics show that more than 40% of the people who go to church really aren't sure what worship means. A worshiper is often defined as someone who darkens the the doors of a church, as if simply coming qualifies you as a worshiper. We call the service the worship service, but it really isn't. It can be singing, it can be preaching, it can be praying, it can be communion. Interesting, the Hebrew word, the Old Testament defines worship. The root meaning has the act of bowing down. And the New Testament word literally means to kiss toward. It's the idea of giving honor to someone. So worship is actually something we do. It is not an adjective that describes a service. It is not a noun necessarily that describes a person. It's a verb that describes an action. It is something we do. What is it? And here's actually the more important question. So what? Why does it matter? Worship. So look at Leviticus, if you would, chapter 21. And we're going to do a lot more than just talk about worship in the sense of an academic, what is it? But we're going to talk about what difference does it make, not just on Sunday, that's kind of easy, but on Monday and the rest of the week. The Barna Research Group put out a report with an astonishing figure. They say that of all the things that people go to church the most that they like about church, worship tops the list. 
More than 90% say that it's very important to them to worship God. And yet, uh, half of us actually feel like they have not experienced the presence of God at church. Interesting statistics when you put those together. 90% say it's important, but half say they've never experienced it. Never experienced the presence of God in church. Leviticus 21, we're going to start right in verse 1. And look at this from the context of the Old Testament priesthood and realizing that we as Christians, the the Apostle Peter told us that we are a kingdom of priests. So there there are timeless truths that we'll see in Leviticus that we can take right over into our lives today. Leviticus 21, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall defile himself for a dead person among his people, except for his relatives who are nearest to him, his mother and his father and his son and his daughter and his brother, also for his virgin sister who is near to him because she has no husband. For her he may defile himself. So the verse, this section begins with what a priest should do when a relative dies. It's just getting down to some some very practical things. Everyone has relatives that die, but a priest is never to defile himself, never to touch a dead body. And of course, here are given the exceptions, uh, the, the rules by which this was to happen. Okay, jump down to verse 13. More, more rules here for the priest. He shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman or one who is profaned by harlotry. These he may not take but rather he is to marry a virgin of his own people. Now, why is that important? The priesthood was inherited. It was passed on. And so there could be no question or there was to be no question as to the origin of the child because the child had to be the son of a priest. And so the importance of of a priest marrying a virgin was for that purpose, as well as for the priest demonstrating the purity that God desired in contrast to the sin of the culture, which we've seen plenty of in the, the chapters prior to this here in Leviticus. But notice these qualifications, and these, I'm just picking these two out of this whole chapter to make a point. The point is that this has nothing to do with his, his responsibilities in the tabernacle. It has nothing to do with his responsibilities as a priest. This is him personally. This is his personal life, Um, not his priestly duties. And so from this, we can pull a principle that is very important, and that is that there is no division between our spiritual life and our secular life. There's no division between our spiritual life and our secular life. The priest had to be holy or had to live a holy life, even in these mundane things like taking care of a a relative that had died, and in the very important thing of who he marries. It had nothing to do with his role and, and as a priest, and yet it was foundational to who he was as a believer or as a priest. It might even be better to say, instead of saying there's no division between our spiritual life and our secular life, it might even be better to say we have no secular life. Everything in our life is a spiritual thing. I uh, I had a, a friend one time back at a former church. You can always use illustrations from former churches because 
then it leaves you the burden of trying to figure out who I'm talking about. But I had a friend at a former church. We got into, it was a, it was a group of leaders, and we were into a pretty heated discussion about the direction that the church should go in this direction and that direction and whatever. Anyway, this guy looked at me and said, this is not a spiritual decision. In other words, this is just a practical decision. We don't need, you know, to, to make this a spiritual issue. And I said, you know, everything's a spiritual decision. Everything. This is, we filter everything that we do through the Word of God and through the wisdom of the principles that we find in the Bible. We don't get to say, you know what, for this, I don't really need the Lord. Remember when Joshua tried that? When the Gibeonites came to Joshua and said, look, look at our moldy bread, look at our old sandals. You know, we're not from Canaan, we're from a far country, which is sort of Canaanite speak for, don't kill us. They lied to Joshua. And then the text says in Joshua, they did not consider the counsel of the Lord. They figured, ah, we just make this decision on our own. Well, and it totally backfired on them. There is no division between our spiritual life and our secular life. In fact, we have no secular life. Everything is a spiritual decision. Now, keep your place here in Leviticus, if you would, and turn to Romans chapter 12. And I will single-handedly try to do the same thing. Romans chapter 12. And on your way to Romans 12, I will read to you from John chapter 4, just by way of preparation. Remember Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well? He told her in John 4, verse 23, he said, An hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. This conversation obviously is much larger than these couple of verses that I've just read to you. But Jesus tells her that it's not where we worship that is as important, and, and it's not even uh, that it's in Jerusalem or whether they were talking about where should we worship. He says it's not where, but it's what's important is how, spirit and truth. And who? The Father. It's a how and a who. It's not a where. It's not about the place. It's about the person. And this verse is really the only place, at least that I'm aware of in the Bible, that says that God seeks something from us. He seeks worshipers to worship in spirit and truth. God seeks that of you and of me. He wants us to be worshipers. He seeks worship. What makes a worshiper worship in spirit and in truth? If we were to return to our word association exercise, I'll ask you again, what do you think of when you hear the word worship? You're in Romans chapter 12. Look at verse 1, this familiar passage. I love the way the New International Version translates it, so I'm going to read that version for verse 1. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So what is worship? 
If, if Paul says, your spiritual act of worship is this, then what is it? Read it again. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. It's not just Sunday, is it? It's Monday. Uh, a few weeks ago, I saw a funny news article from Kenai, Alaska. Have you ever heard of Kenai, Alaska? It's just south of Anchorage. I had to look it up. I had no idea where, where it was. But Kenai, Alaska, there was a moose that walked into a movie theater and just started helping himself to the popcorn. <laughs> that is one hungry moose. I love popcorn, too, so... That- Makes a lot of sense. And uh, after he emptied the popcorn popper thing, he walks over to the trash can and begins nosing around in there, finds a discarded McDonald's Happy Meal, and walks out with the Happy Meal box stuck on his nose. Walks out. The employee filmed the whole thing. If You can look it up and you can see this moose. So I, I read that and thought, you know, that in a sense that's kind of like what we are. We're like a moose at the movies. We'll go where we don't belong if we're hungry enough. We will worship something. If it isn't God, we will be like a moose at the movies. We're never going to worship God with a sincere heart unless we do, as Paul says in this verse, in the view of God's mercy. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Sounds pretty profound, but comes right after Romans 1 through 11 in which Romans 1-11 through 11 goes through the wonderful, deep theology of our lostness, of God's grace in Christ, of sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross, to be the, the, the propitiation or the, 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 uh, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and that by faith in him our sins are forgiven. And then we've got those great chapters in uh, chapters 6-8 through eight that talk about how to walk with Christ on a daily basis. Then we've got chapters 9 through 11 that talk about, well, what about Israel? I mean, if we're secure in Christ, what about Israel? I mean, they rejected Christ. They didn't, they didn't accept Christ. God rejected them, right? Paul says, no, there is a future for Israel. It takes three chapters to do that, basically as a big amen to the fact that God will never reject us because it's of his grace. It has nothing to do with us. It's about him. Therefore, verse, chapter 12, verse 1, in, in view of the mercies of God, in view of all that God's done for you, Paul says, offer your body as a living sacrifice. Our motivation to worship God with daily obedience is gratitude. In view of God's mercy. Um, we worship God with a sincere heart. So here's uh, the second principle that we can pull from our text today, and that is our entire life is a worship service to God. Think of your entire life as a worship service to God. I love the old uh, Keith Green song. I think his I think his song was called No Compromise, but the very beginning of that song says, I make my life a prayer to you. I make my life a prayer to you. I want to do what you want me to. No compromise. Our entire life is a worship service to God. Now, the verses that follow, look at, look at verse 3. And here I'll jump to the New American Standard Version. Verse 3, 
For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Look down at verse 16. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. I had a guy come up to me one time and said that he just couldn't find a church he liked because he couldn't find a place that did music the way he liked it. And this guy, I understood where he was coming from because he was an incredibly gifted musician. I mean, amazingly, like really very good. He says, I just, every place I go, the music's just terrible. And I said, well, it's because you're such an amazing musician. You go in there with the mindset of a musician, not the mindset of a worshiper. And maybe you can relate to this. If you've got a background in something that happens during the service, you tend to bring that background with you in the service. And those of us, or like myself, who've been in the ministry, I did the math on it. It's like 35 years now. That's just, that's a long time. And in those 35 years, I have focused on uh, music, on, on playing an instrument, on leading worship, on teaching and preaching, on writing, and on leadership. And when I go to a worship service, I'm constantly having to whack-a-mole. You know that game, whack-a-mole? Something pops up and you hit it, and then something else pops up and you hit it. I mean, maybe there's a musician on stage, and God help him if he's a guitarist, because I'm all over him in my evaluation of him. Or I look at the, the graphics on screen or video, and I think, you know, the edit on that video could maybe have been a little different. Or I look at the graphics and, and how it's, the punctuation is there. I look at commas on the screen. And, of course, the preacher, thank goodness we have a good preacher, or it would be miserable. You know, we, we, we laugh a bit at my expense here, but think about it. You do the same thing. It's just who we are. We come as consumers, not as worshipers. We come to the service not in order to worship, not in order to give God. We come in order to take Give me the music I like. Give me the preaching I like. Give me the slides with the commas in the right place. Because it is all about me, right? Worship has become a source of division in our church rather than something that brings us together. Think about the Pharisees who wagged their finger at Jesus. Said, you are not following our tradition. And what did Jesus say? You are following tradition to the exclusion of God's word. Kathy and I have a daughter who has been in Africa this week on a short-term mission trip, our daughter Sarah, and she sent us video of uh, some of the, the singing that, that, that went on there. I didn't know the song. Uh, they weren't dressed like we dress. They were up jumping around, arms waving, and it was kind of neat to see because I was looking at Africa. But if that had happened in our worship service this morning, how do you think 
we evangelical Bible-believing people would feel. Huh. <laughs> exactly, Mike. That's exactly how we'd feel. Let's flip, flip it around. What if Sarah had stopped everything and, sa- and stopped all their worship and said, look, this is not how you do it. Sit in rows, bring some pews in, pass out the hymnals, keep your hands in your pockets. How ridiculous is that? It's absolutely ridiculous. And yet we do the same thing right here. If, if somebody dares to do something different than us, uh, we, we're all over it. We're all over it. Kathy and I had had a good friend in Tyler. He's with the Lord now. And uh, on occasion, years ago, we would go and stay at their house at night, uh, overnight, and then go to church with them. And they had different services at that time. And he says he prefers the traditional hymns um, at, at the church. And he says, but he'll also go to the contemporary service. And we said, why do you do that? And he says, because he goes and he worships through the praise songs that he doesn't particularly like because he knows it ministers to other people. Think about Jesus on his short-term mission trip here to earth. You think Jesus was ever having to sidestep his preferences? All the time. He sang their songs. He wore their clothes. That is humility. That is humility. Worshiping in truth is the application of truth in worship. And humility is a great, great uh, way to do that. We've all got musical preferences. Some like hymns. So for you dentists, what's your favorite hymn? Crown him with many crowns. Exactly. (laughs) You were pretty quick with that. How about meteorologists? There shall be showers of blessing, right? Golfers, there's a green hill far away. (laughs) Politicians, standing on the promises. IRS auditors, I surrender all. (laughs) Yes. Jesus paid it all would be even better, wouldn't it? Um, For optometrists, Open my eyes that I may see. And the best is for last, shoppers, the sweet buy and buy. (laughs) Seriously, sometimes God, we assume God shares our taste in music, don't we? Of course God likes what we like, because we love it. Um, Mother's Day is, I, I read an article just this week saying, And here's the name of the title of the article. Why Mother's Day is the most hated day in the restaurant industry. (laughs) So get ready, because I'm sure you're going to head into this industry here pretty soon. Why is it so bad? The article basically said that some restaurant goers have an extra sense of entitlement. Extra sense of entitlement. I don't know why, but hey, that's what they say. In fact, one guy, Darren Cardosa, writes, quote, Every server knows that working on Mother's Day is hell. In fact, if I die and go to hell, I completely expect it to be Mother's Day 365 days a year. So let's surprise them today, okay? But the idea is entitlement. Entitlement. I'm entitled. 
to be a jerk toward you. I pay you so that I can be a jerk toward you. No, and we, we carry that same mindset often into church. Luis Palau said this. I love, have you ever heard Luis Palau say his name? I just love the way he says it. This is Luis Palau. That's how he says it. He says this, beware of the mindset in looking to see if the church will meet our needs. When my family is ready to leave for church, we take certain expectations about what we want to receive and then leave them at home with our dog. Consequently, everything we do receive is a blessing. When the Hebrews would offer their sacrifices in the Old Testament, particularly the peace offerings, remember way back in the early chapters of Leviticus at the peace offering? The peace offering was that offering that you could participate in. You didn't just give it to God, but you gave it to God, it was cooked, and then you got to eat part of it along with the priests. So you were participating from it. You actually benefited from the offering that you were giving. They personally benefited from it. But the Hebrews didn't offer sacrifices because they wanted a steak dinner. They didn't say, you know, I'm kind of in the mood for a steak dinner, hon. Let's go offer a peace offering today. We'll, we'll, We'll worship God. Nope, that's not what they did. They were there to sacrifice for God. And as a result, there was a benefit that they received. The motive was totally about the Lord. It was not about self. All that to say, worship can be entertaining. Worship can be personally nurturing. And honestly, it should be. But what is ahead of that is a heart that wants to worship God. We don't go to church to be entertained, but often we are, and that's okay. We go to worship, and a byproduct of worship is often that we are ministered to as well. The Bible calls it a sacrifice of praise. A sacrifice of praise. Praise is a sacrifice we do. It's not done for us. It's for the Lord. It's corporate. Okay. um, You've heard, we're here in Romans 12 about the living sacrifice, and we all heard the cliche by now that the problem with the living sacrifice is that it, it crawls off the altar. We have to constantly keep our mind on that being a living sacrifice. In the Old Testament, what was sacrificed to God was God's possession. This is our spiritual act of worship, Paul writes. It is our spiritual act of worship. Literally, the original language says it is our logical act of worship. It's reasonable. for, In view of God's mercies, logically, we're going to devote our lives to him. The King James actually says it is our reasonable act of worship. It is rational to do this. Timothy Christian writes, If worship is just one thing we do, everything becomes mundane. If worship is the one thing we do, everything takes on significance. So, back to Leviticus, if you would. Like the priests, it's the same in our lives. Everything we do is dedicated to God. How we treat death, how we marry, where we work. It's not a non-spiritual decision. Everything is a spiritual decision. Look now at chapter 22. Chapter 22, right in verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell Aaron and his sons to be careful with the holy gifts of the sons of Israel, which they dedicate to me so as not to profane my holy name. I am the Lord. 
Say to them, if any man among all your descendants throughout your generations approaches the holy gifts which the sons of Israel dedicate to the Lord, while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from before me. I am the Lord. No man of the descendants of Aaron who is a leper or who has a discharge may eat of the holy gifts until he is clean. So we've said this in the past, but it's probably good to just reiterate it, that to be unclean doesn't necessarily mean to be sinful. It just means that it's a technical term that as we read the English, we are at a disadvantage. It's just a technical term that means you're in a non-normal state, that you need to be purified to be able to be in a normal state as God defines normalness, and then you may participate. But the problem, of course, here is that if, if a priest uh, is a leper, of course, he's like, he can't get back into a, into a normal state. So he is permanently uh, has to set aside and not serve in the context of a priest. How is this relevant to us? That the gifts that are offered to God had to be flawless. For the people who served the Lord, they had to be in a clean state. Uh, we give God our best. We don't give God the, uh, the leftovers, as it were, either of our lives or of our sacrifices. Um, I read Paul Harvey had, around Thanksgiving a few years ago, Paul Harvey shared a true story, a true story about how the Butterball Turkey Company set up a telephone hotline to answer uh, questions that people had about how to cook their holiday turkeys. And one woman called uh, about cooking a turkey that had been in her freezer for 23 years. And the Butterball representative said the turkey probably would be safe to eat if it had been kept frozen for 23 years, but they said it probably isn't going to have a great taste after all that time. And the caller said this, quote, that's what I thought, so we'll give our turkey to the church. We want to give God our best, don't we? God deserves a brand new butterball turkey. God deserves living sacrifices that honor him with lives that, that live in faithfulness. Um, I want to read to you. I don't know if you've uh, got Chuck's book, Chuck Swindoll's book, The Church Awakening. You got this book? It would be worth getting. And there's a chapter. He's got a whole chapter on worship. My opinion is the best chapter in the book. And he says this, uh, page 141. True worship begins by realizing that God seeks those who worship him with all of who they are. It's not just a Sunday morning activity. When I awaken in the morning, God seeks my worship. As I'm serving in my vocation throughout the day, God seeks my worship. On Saturday afternoon when I'm working in the yard, God seeks my worship. The Father wants me to worship him in all circumstances, as I drive my car, as I rear my family, as I live alongside my wife, when I am alone or when I'm with others, when I'm thinking quietly or laughing loudly. The same is true of your life. Whatever the details may be, he wants you to view everything as an act of worship. Yes, it's possible to worship on a hospital bed. We can worship God in financial crisis. It's possible to worship at a graveside. 
Even with everything having been lost, you can still worship God in view of his rich mercies toward you, and because of his sovereignty, you can say, give me Jesus. You don't need comfortable surroundings or the soft seats of a pew. You don't need a choir or a praise band. You don't need a pipe organ or a drum set. Those elements may assist you, but worship must be a part of your daily walk with God in every part of your personal life. Otherwise, we're just consumers, or worse, we're opponents. We are opponents in a worship war. So, worship. What is worship? It is we begin every day as a living sacrifice in view of God's mercy, that we devote ourselves to God. And then on Sunday, that just spills over into what we do corporately, that we worship God together as a body. I love the way Ruth Bell Graham said it. She said, I have learned that worship and worry cannot live in the same heart. They are mutually exclusive. Let's pray. Our Father, we have good reason to worship you. You're not an angry God that demands it or you will squash us. You are a gracious God that has given your only Son to meet the demand for righteousness that we could never meet. You sent your Son to live the life that we failed to live, to die the death we deserve to die, and rose again to show that our sins indeed are paid for and full when Jesus died on the cross. Thank you that we have this amazing grace to look at. And in view of your mercies bestowed upon us simply by grace, the Apostle Paul tells us that we are to live our lives as living sacrifices and to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought, but to give preference to one another. Leviticus reminds us, Father, that our, um, our, our spiritual lives have no secular life to it, just as the priest had to live a certain way even in his private life, so we are not just Christians on the outside or on the surface, but every day in the private moments of our home as well as in the public moments of our worship. Thank you for the reminder of what worship truly is. And as we go forth today as worshipers, may you be pleased because we are the people that you seek. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Wayne. For all the mothers, I hope you have a blessed day and see you next Sunday. Until then, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.